Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We who are by nature Jews and not Gentile sinners, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we are seeking to be justified in Christ, we should be found, even ourselves, to be sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? May it not be. For if the things which I destroy, these things again I build, I demonstrate myself to be a transgressor. For I, through the law, have died to the law in order that I should live to God. I'm crucified with Christ. And no longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I live it. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if through the law comes righteousness, then Christ died purposelessly. Would you pause with me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we feel the need to pray as the apostle long ago prayed that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand that which has been inscribed in Scripture. We pray that thou wouldst descend upon us, speak to us, and make this passage of Scripture come alive with the beauty of its meaning and with the depth of its implication. Spirit of faith, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth through all its passions move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and make me love thee as I ought to love. For Christ's sake, amen. Last evening I had the opportunity to uh, review the sophomore musical production for Saturday night. And as I sat and listened to it, and as I looked at the title of this production, Celebrate Life, I became assured in my own mind of what I needed to say uh, in this chapel engagement. As I listened to the words of the, song, of the songs and as I caught the spirit of what the production was trying to say, I thought back to this passage of Scripture that I've known from the early days of my ministry. I'm crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I thought about that passage of Scripture. I have known it for a long time. I've used it in preaching for a long time. In the early days of my ministry, I found it often a, a good text proof for preaching upon the entirely sanctified life, the crucified life. And often as I exhorted people into this experience, I, I used that phrase that Paul was crucified with Christ. We should die out to self and be crucified with Christ. I shall never forget when I was a seminary student, after I had begun my ministry, I was sitting in practice preaching during my senior year when a friend and colleague was preaching and using this passage of Scripture. I was certain from the beginning of his reading where he was going, and I knew he was going to use Galatians 2.20 as the text of his message. And really, before he ever got to Galatians 2.20, I had his sermon pretty well outlined in my mind. This is what he was going to say. But that morning, I was never to hear his message. And I still do not know what he said. Because as the scripture was being read, and he reached the 20th verse and started to read it, my mind became captivated with that verse. And I realized that I had totally missed the point of what the Apostle Paul was saying. About a year ago now, one evening before retiring, I was lying in bed reading from Oswald Chambers' great devotional classic, My Utmost for His Highest, and there was a phrase in his devotion for the evening that leaped off of the page and into my heart. God never has museums. After we had turned out the light that evening, for a long time I thought about that. God never has museums. Just the summer before that, a group of Asbarians and myself had had the privilege of traveling for a, a short time in Europe and visiting a lot of churches and cathedrals. I remembered in my mind that evening the experience of going into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, of being staggered literally by the beauty of the entire thing. I remember the emotion that flooded through my heart as I stood before the Pietà of Michelangelo. I remembered our trip to Venice and through St. Mark's Cathedral, the churches in Florence with all of their beauty, and Notre Dame in Paris. How magnificent. What a wonderful time it was. We enjoyed it. I, I stood in awe of the beauty, such architecture, such sculpturing, such art. I'd never seen anything like it in all of my life. But that evening as I lay in bed, I thought about all of those churches, and I thought about the Louvre through which we passed. And you know, I really couldn't make a difference between them. They were museums. The people were standing in line. They flooded through Notre Dame and St. Peter's and through all of the rest of them that they, th they flooded through 
to see the art, to see the sculpturing, to admire the architecture. And then my mind went back to Jerusalem, where we had spent a great deal longer time, and to a Byzantine building that's not really the upper room, but which is passed off by tour guides today as the upper room. It's a bare place, no beautiful architecture, no beautiful sculpture whatsoever, not one beautiful painting hanging in the bare room, not even a pew, not even a chair. And there are a lot of people who don't go by to stand in line to pass through the upper room, but many do. And I thought to myself, the reason why people go to the upper room is different than why people go to see St. Peter's Basilica in Notre Dame. The latter two are great works of art, architecture. But what they remember when they visit the upper room is what happened there. And that's what draws people to the upper room. And I connected it again with Galatians 2.20 and to the realization that I had missed the truth of that text for so long until that day in the seminary chapel, my mind fastened upon the thrust of what Paul was really saying. Oh, he did say, I am crucified with Christ. But he said something else. He said, and now I live. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the emphasis in that verse is not upon the death, it's upon the life. And I found myself looking at my own theology and realizing that sometimes we so stereotype our theology, we so solidify it in our nice systematic form, that sometimes we miss the dynamic of the experience about which the apostle was writing. There is the truth of being crucified with Christ. But there is the greater reality that grows out of that experience, the life that we now live. I thought that evening as I lay in bed, I thought again and again since that time that this is really the message of the early church. This is the emphasis that they lifted up. There was a life, there was a dynamic that had entered into their lives. They had passed from death unto life. They had been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And last evening as I watched the program Celebrate Light, it all flooded back into my mind again. They had discovered a dynamic that, sad to say, later centuries too often had frozen into stale and stagnant theological formulae which constitute religion, but too often apart from the genuine experience of the dynamic of Christian living. Isn't it sad that so often today with the mention of Jesus Christ, we think of churches and creeds, of preachers and sermons, of prayers and proprieties. But the early church thought of a dynamic and of something that had happened to them so radically that life could never be the same again. I went back to Galatians 2, 20 and 21, and I looked at it all over again. And the longer I look at those verses, the more it comes alive to my own heart. 
And the more I see the dynamic of that experience which ought to characterize my life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, make no mistake about it. Theology there is. Dogma there is. Doctrine is solidly rooted in these verses. And there is no sense to talking about life apart from the theology to which one clings. But neither is there any reality to talking about theology that does not issue into a life that is genuine and transformed. As I looked at this passage of Scripture and as I look at it again with you today, there were three things about life that I saw from the Apostle's pen. First, I saw that he was talking about a changed life. He said, this isn't the life I've always lived, the life that I now live. There was something different about the life of the Apostle Paul. He could talk about a B.C. and an A.D. in his experience. He had passed from death unto life. You can go back in the book of Acts for yourself and read about Paul prior to that Damascus Road experience and subsequent. And it doesn't really take a scholar. It takes only a cursory reading of the book of Acts to see that something had happened to the apostle that was so transforming that he had to talk about life in the now and differentiate it between what it had been. Oh, we can take Romans 7 and read it again and again and see how Paul says, the things that I wanted to do, I did not do. The things that I did not want to do, I was always doing. Who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do it. And he has done it. What a marvelous truth. There is a B.C. and an A.D. in personal experience. You know, it really excites me every time I think about it that it doesn't really make any difference where you go today. In Western culture, you can't really identify the date of today without talking about Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 1975, because the life of Jesus Christ made a cleavage in history. And it may be the rankest pagan in the business world when he dates his bill of sale, says, in the year of our Lord, 1975. Because Jesus made that kind of a difference. Every political document that we date, we date it in the year of Jesus. He's made a cleavage in history. But you know, it's sad to say, isn't it, that while we recognize the cleavage that he makes in history generally, we never really bring it down sometimes to our own personal lives. And I think this is what Paul was talking about. There was a B.C. and an A.D. in his life. They had come about by the presence of Jesus Christ, by the advent of the Son of God, something that was so distinctive in his life that he had to mark off the period in his life, the life that I now live. Oh, I didn't always live this way, but it's the life that I now live. That's what we need within our experiences. If I long for anything, for Asbury students, it's the ability to go out and bear witness to Jesus Christ, not in terms of being able to parrot correctly the orthodoxy of our views. As important as those views are, and as extremely significant as it is to be orthodox, I believe, it's to be able to, be, uh, to talk about a life that 
we now live and the dynamic that Jesus Christ brings. Some of my students in the past in basic Christian beliefs have been compelled to read Leslie Newbegin's book, The Finality of Christ. And they will recall in that last chapter of the book how Newbegin lifts up what it is in conversion that really produces that transformation and that new dynamic life of which Paul talks. And as I've read that chapter again and again, I think this is what the Bible is trying to give us. Newbegin says that there are at least three elements that come into the converted individual's life that marks off the distinction of life as it was and life as it is in terms of pure mechanics. First of all, he says there's a personal experience with God. What a reality for the Apostle Paul. How many times do we find him going back in the book of Acts and bearing his testimony, and he has to go back to that road of Damascus where Jesus Christ made his advent into his life and how he had to bear witness to the fact that he had had a personal experience with God. What a significant thing this is for your life and mine, that we can talk about our personal experiences with God. Oh, I'm not so much interested, as I just said to a class last hour, that we can pinpoint the second, the minute, the spot, the place where maybe we entered into the Christian life. So often we put the emphasis at the wrong place. It is not as important that you can remember that it was August the 8th, 1973 at 7.37 p.m. in the evening in whatever city it may have occurred and whatever altar you may have knelt. That's not the important thing. Although there is that crisis experience where we do enter it from death into life, the important thing is that today, in your present experience, you can talk in terms of reality and say, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if that's not a reality to you today, I care nothing about times and places and dates and seasons. They're absolutely irrelevant. Too often we find ourselves going back to the security of some moment rather than in the reality of a personally, a personal continuing relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, I caught that verse that morning. The life that I now live. He had had an experience with the, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do not doubt but what Paul could have sung that gospel song. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought. Since Jesus came into my heart, I have light in my soul for which long I had sought. Since Jesus came into my heart, I have ceased from my wandering and going astray. Since Jesus came into my heart, and my sins, which were many, have all washed away since Jesus came into my heart. A personal reality, you see, of that experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when I was pastoring in Indiana, one evening I was invited to speak to a, a, uh, a Valentine's banquet. And a friend of mine who belongs to another church was invited to do the singing for the banquet that evening. Some of the songs weren't quite appropriate to Valentine's Day, it didn't seem. But I never will forget one of them that he sang. I've never heard it, I ne had never heard it before, I have never heard it since. But the words of the song went something like this. If you ain't seen nothing, and you ain't heard nothing, and you ain't felt nothing, you ain't got nothing at all. 
And frankly, I found within myself an amen. There is a reality to the Lord Jesus Christ that transcends correct dogma. That's why John Wesley could say that orthodoxy is but a slender part of real religion. It's something much deeper than that. There is that personal experience to the changed life, but Newbegin says there's more to it than just the experience that we have with God. And you know, as evangelicals, and particularly here at Asbury, in our holiness tradition, we have a tendency to stop at this point and say this is the reality, that we have accepted Jesus Christ and have had a personal experience. But Newbegin goes farther as we must. He says that in the converted life, there is also the reality of a commitment that one has made to the Christian community. It's more than just simply that Paul encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that as he got up from the road uh, on the, uh, the way to Damascus and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do my loyalty lie? Where do my loyalties lie? Where are my commitments now to be placed? And genuinely, those of you who have entered into a new life find that there are new commitments that engage our lives. It's a newness not only because there is a personal reality that we have encountered God, but it is expressed in our commitment to one another. We're committed to the Christian community, and we're committed to the will of God and the carrying out of the will of God on earth. Several years ago, I was given the opportunity to speak for a week to uh, soldiers at Fort Knox who were training in basic training. And again and again in the rap sessions that had been scheduled, I, I found uh, a number of the young men asking the question, well, don't you think really I, I can be a Christian, I can worship God and not become involved in the church? Can I really do it alone by myself, out on the hill, out in nature, all alone? Can I really be more conscious of God than I would be in a church building? Now, your immediate response might be to say yes. Because I find as inspiring as it is for me sometimes to sit in Hughes Auditorium and let my eyes rest upon this quote from Zechariah, holiness unto the Lord, and look at the stained glass windows and think about all of the transactions that God has made with people in a place like this. I find that a moment standing out in the beauty of nature, discovering afresh for myself the wonders of God's marvelous creation that I feel infinitely closer to him than I can do in a human superstructure. But I think the question really lies deeper than can I worship God better out looking at the beauties of nature than I can in a human structure. I think it goes to the point, can I really identify myself with the dynamic of Christian living apart from any commitment to the rest of the Christian community? And I think the answer is no. Without reservation, no. In the Old Testament covenant, the Jews were not only bound to a relationship between themselves and God, but they were bound into a covenant with one another. And we tend to forget that the law of God related not only to their relationship to God, but it related to their, to their relationship with one another. I like to remind my classes, and some of you will remember that I do it often, that when the young man stopped and asked Jesus that day, what is the greatest of all the commandments that Jesus responded to him and said, the greatest of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute, Jesus. Who asked you for the second one? We asked you for the first one. I only asked you for the greatest one. But he didn't give them the greatest one. He gave them the two of them because you cannot separate the two of them. You cannot love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength unless there is involved in that love a commitment to the Christian community and a commitment to the will of God within human society. That's why John can say in the first epistle, he that says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar and the truth is not in him. Because if we do not love our brother whom we have seen, how can we love God whom we have not seen? I wanted to preach to you really this morning on another passage of scripture. I wanted to preach on the words of Jesus where he asked the Pharisees, can you not discern the signs of the time? You can discern the signs of the sky. Red skies at morning, sailors take warning. Red skies at night, sailors delight. Oh, we can read the signs of the day, the signs of the seasons. But can't we really read the signs of the times in which it becomes incumbent upon the Christian community to become interpreters of the will of God in the light and in the context of the issues of the day? Can we not discern the signs of the times? We will never do it apart from a commitment to the Christian community and to the total will of God for human society. That's why you really can't identify yourself with loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and be unconcerned about a chapel like last Tuesday where we talk about the hunger needs of the world. But there was something else, Newbegin says, in this newness that it was discovered by the early disciples. There was also the acceptance of a pattern of conduct. I really react when people say, you should realize that God loves you just like you are. I always react negatively to that because I don't think that's an accurate statement. God loves you, I have no quarrel with. Just like you are, I have a lot of quarrel with. Because if it's just like you are that God is satisfied, why in the world did Jesus ever die on the cross? God loves us, nobody wants to quarrel with that, but God wants to change us so that we will become as we are not. For God really doesn't like us as we are. He wants to make us into something which we are not, but which we can be through the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the early church, the dynamic that they saw in their lives was in part explainable in the difference in the pattern of conduct that they achieved in their living. It's been interesting to me to look at the epistles of Paul. I'm not a New Testament scholar, make no pretension to be. But as I've read and studied the New Testament uh, epistles, it's been interesting to me to notice the format of Paul's writings. How he always seems to move from that laying of the foundation in solid doctrinal concerns, but never content only with laying that foundation. He moves into the application and he moves into the implications of those theological understandings. 
So as he writes to the church at Rome, he lays out the doctrine of the gospel of which he is not ashamed. That justification by faith, that sanctification of the Spirit of God. But he cannot conclude until he comes and says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but metamorphosize, transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then he begins verse after verse to talk about the lifestyle of the individual. Now, too often I hear people talking about lifestyle divorced from theological basis, and you can't do it. Paul develops the lifestyle only after he has laid his theological foundation from which that lifestyle can evolve and upon which it can be settled and established. But neither does he only content himself to talk about theological truths that have no direct application to the ordinary, everyday experiences of life. You cannot talk about theology apart from its implication to the patterns of conduct that you accept. And I trust that in the years that you're here at Asbury, if anything comes across in all of our studies of the Scripture, in all of the chapel messages that are preached, is that we need that solid theological footing, but we need to build a superstructure of a lifestyle that's compatible with the will of God. There is an acceptable pattern of conduct in the life that we now live. Now Paul says much more than this, and time doesn't permit me to develop each point. But you'll notice that he talks not only about a life that he now lives, a changed life. Paul talks in this verse also about a crucified life. I am crucified with Christ. I sometimes think that this is really the thorn. This is really the obstacle. People come so far until as they move toward Jesus Christ, they discover that there's a cross erected right in the middle of the road and it bears their name. And as the songwriter asks, must Jesus bear the cross alone? And all the world go free. No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. And Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There comes that experience in which face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize that this is the real issue. I love the way the songwriter says it. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've hoped and sought and known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. There's a crucified life. And it's interesting to me that Paul talks about his crucified life before he starts talking about the life that can be lived. And I think that there's reason behind it. The life that God really intends for us to live can only flow out of that crucified life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers says that the cross for the Christian can only represent a complete identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am crucified. And out of this crucifixion comes the life. 
that I now live. In the fifth chapter, he's going to say in the 24th verse that they who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with the lust thereof. But in the Asbury Wesleyan tradition, we say there's another step. There is the truth that I first saw in this passage of Scripture. There is a dying out to self where totally and completely we come to the point of realizing that there's only one kind of surrender that I can make, and that is a total abdication to love God with all of my mind, heart, soul, and strength. I am convinced that in the conversion experience people are not prepared to make that step. I am convinced of the truth of the deeper experience of God's grace in which only the person who has entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ that's real can discover the need and see himself well enough to know that there is something deeper than the actions I have committed against God to which I need to die. I'm crucified, Paul says. And it's out of this crucifixion that the dynamic of total Christian living really grows. Lastly, it's a cooperative life. Verse 21 says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Paul finds himself moving not counter to the leading of the Holy Spirit, but he finds himself in this new dynamic that he has discovered moving with God opening life totally and completely to everything that God wants through his grace to give him. Some of you will remember a couple of years ago, Jack Taylor spoke from this pulpit. And he closed one of the messages with a prayer that I do not really want to forget. And I shall not. He prayed, O oh Lord, do in me all that you need to do in order that you may do through me all that you want to do. I do not frustrate God's grace. And it's in this spirit, I think, that the Apostle Paul has himself as an open vessel before God always with a prayer on his heart. Oh God, let everything that you would accomplish through Jesus Christ in my life be done. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. I think I walked out last night celebrating life. Not really because of the 
of the musical itself because I was brought back to the reality of the life that I now live through Christ.